0: Good morning. If you would, turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 1 verse 14. John chapter 1 verse 14. And I'm uh, going to give a book away this morning in both services, but uh, for this service I'm going to give away The Glory of Christ by John Owen, one of the, one of the many Puritans. And whoever rotated their tires last is going to get a copy of of this great book. Who who here got their tires rotated last? Two weeks ago? Tim is paying close attention to his tires. Good work, though. Anybody else? Tom? Oh, are you sure, Tom? What's that? Rotate your tires. Nope, doesn't count. On your way, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it really, it really does a pastor's heart good to see you lie to try to get good theology. <laughs> John chapter one, verse fourteen is what I want to cover this morning, but. Um, full of grace and truth. Let's pray together. Lord, I ask for your help for us this morning. God, as we open up your word and have hearts, I pray hearts that are ready and sensitive to the truth, that Christ would be glorified, in this time of the declaration of the word, especially this truth of the incarnation, this truth of the gospel. And Father, I know that the enemy hates this message. He does not want this message preached this morning. He wants me to be quiet. I can play religion all I want, but as soon as we start talking about these kinds of things, he's angry. And so, Lord, my prayer is that the truth of your word would be preached clearly and truthfully. So, Father, please keep me out of the way. And by your precious spirit, you would sow the truth of the word. And that, God, the impact that you so desire to have from this message would, by all means, move forward and that Jesus would be honored. So, Father, may we now look carefully at this truth. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a rhetorical question, so don't answer, if you would. Um, if, If you were to sum up this whole year in one word, this whole year, 2020, in one word, what word would you say? Don't say it, just think about it. And it'd be interesting to hear the many different words, the, the descriptive terms that you would, you would place upon everything that's happened this year. This year, and I know that we have a lot of things in common, of strange things that took place this year, but there's also a myriad of things that hit each one of us personally, some difficulty, some joy, but nonetheless, a, a year of varied stuff that happened. The year that, the word that comes to my mind for the rest of my life for 2020 is strange. It's a strange year. A lot of things happen. And I don't just mean coronavirus and I don't just mean the the riots in the streets, the election, I don't mean that necessarily. But just the things I saw take place in my own life and in the life of the people that I love in this church and in my family, is a strange year. If there was one question I asked most often this year, it is this. And I've thought about this a lot. I've thought about our elder meetings. I've thought about the pulpit. I've thought about my conversations with my wife. I've thought about conversations with my friends, with my family. If there's one question I've asked this year over and over and over and over again, it's this one question. Yeah, but what's God doing? Yeah, but what, what is God doing? Yeah, but what is God doing? That question has come to my mind so many times where I've heard so many strange pieces of news. Yeah, but what's God doing? What's he doing in the midst of this? What's he doing through this? How is he using this for his good purpose? That's a theological question that if, if you have a grasp on the Bible, that would be a question you would naturally pose. We are our, our response as Biblicists, as students of the Word, as folks who, who are, are grasping and putting together an understanding of the Lord and of His Word, we would ask the question I see it, yeah, I know from, from just the flyover view, I see what's going on, but I want to know what's God doing in the midst of what I see? That's a question worth posing, and theologically, and we as Christians should always be posing that question, not just 2020, it's not just, oh, this is a weird year. It was a weird year, but this is a question we should be asking all the time, but what is God accomplishing in this? Whether it's good news, bad news, weird news, no news, just a boring time of life, what's God doing in the midst of this? What's he doing behind the scenes? This should always be a question on our mind. And I will say this because there's two angles. There's two angles that we are looking at everything by. And before I move forward, um, let me light a candle. I'm supposed to light that last one. No, I got this, guys. I wouldn't put it past any of you to put a trick candle up there that I couldn't light. Now, the reason I don't have a specific lighting of the candle is because this entire message is around that. But this question of what is God doing and looking at it at two different angles. And that's why I started my question with, yes, I see that, but what is God doing? How many times has somebody texted you or emailed you or called you with some strange piece of news this year? Did you see? Have you heard? Did did, did you know? Look at these stats, over and over and over and over again. And there's two views, two angles. Yes, I see it from that angle, but I also want to look at it from his angle. And so this morning, guys, it got me to thinking this week on this concept of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, specifically of the birth of the Lord Jesus. So, I want to look at it from man's perspective for just a little bit, and then look at it theologically from God's perspective. From man's perspective, so what do we have here? We have a dirt poor couple, they aren't even married yet, she's pregnant, they're not married yet, out of wedlock, they go, they knock on the door, there's no room for you here. That means something a little different in our culture now. It brings to mind the coming of Jesus, or it should, his first advent, so on and so forth. That's a positive thing. But let's not forget, in that positive thing, in what God was accomplishing, that historically, this was kind of a sad deal. Here's a quote from Jim Packer. The Gospels of Matthew and Luke tell us in some detail how the Son of God came to this world. He was born outside a small hotel in an obscure Jewish village in the great days of the Roman Empire. The story is usually prettied up when we tell it Christmas by Christmas, but it's really rather beastly and cruel. The reason why Jesus was born outside the hotel is that it was full and nobody would offer a bed to a woman in labor, so that she had to have her baby in the stables And cradle him in a cattle trough. The story is told dispassionately and without comment, but no thoughtful reader can read shuddering at the picture of callousness and degradation that it draws... Now you just think about that. I know when we read, he swallowed him in these clothes and they put him in the manger and we have this picture. We've heard that read, if you grew up in the church anyway, you've heard that read Christmas after Christmas and it has a warm fuzzy feeling with the light of the Christmas tree and hot apple cider or coffee or whatever and, and all of that brings back those memories. And that's beautiful. I don't want to tarnish that. But in the moment, at that time, we have a pregnant woman who's not married, with her husband, who is just on the cusp of divorcing her and decided not to because an angel told him not to. And then they go to a hotel and say, my wife is about to have a baby. Well, good for you. There's room out in the barn. And then he's born out there by himself with with mom and dad. There's no big deal about it. This is the advent of Jesus Christ that the entirety of the Old Testament is pointing towards, and it looks so boring. If you were to actually, from man's perspective, back off and just look at the event. If anything, you'd feel bad for them. You'd feel pity for them with what they were going through. A great historical figure is born, some may say. But really, it's just poor people having a kid out of wedlock. And the image of the major scene is actually quite sad. From a purely earthly vantage point, it simply looks like a poor sad situation and there's not too bright of a future for that young man. Now, when you look at it from that angle, I don't know how from the worldly standpoint you wouldn't look at that and just be shocked at like, wow, what's the big deal? Is there a big deal? Who is this? What's going on here? Now, Here's what I want you to do, guys. That is man's perspective. That's all you got. That's all you can see. And you look at it and you think, this is, this is simply a sad, weird situation. Here's the interesting part for us as Christians. Our eyes don't tell us the story so much of the time. Our ears don't tell us the story. Our newscasters certainly don't ever tell us the story. As we look at what's taking place around us from man's perspective, with these eyes, with simply this world, our response is, this is so sad and everything's coming apart at the seams. But this morning I want to look at God's perspective with you for a little while. And this question of, okay, from the world's perspective, as they look at that baby in the manger, they are completely taken aback at this sad scene. Let's look at God's perspective. If you would, turn with me. I'm going to look at two different passages. John chapter 1, which I've already read, but I'm going to read it again. And Colossians chapter 1. And I'm going to ask three questions. Who is the word of John 1.14? What is he doing and why is he doing it? Who is the word? What is the word doing and why is the word doing that? John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. I'm going to read just a little further. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And Colossians chapter 1. Just so you guys know, this is not necessarily an exposition from John 1.14. My desire this morning is for John 1.14 to be the, the uh, launching pad with many other scriptures attached. To it. So, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. And we're asking this question who's the Word? Because the Word's in the manger. You know that. Colossians 1 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth Please catch that word, so important. In everything, He might be preeminent. For in Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Through Him, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Now this thought of who is the Word, as we see in John 1, That prologue there, verses 1 through 14, and even a little bit further, it speaks specifically to who the Word is, the Word of God, the very expression of God. As we said years ago at a VBS, if you want to see God, look to Christ and you will see God. Jesus is the very expression of the living God. We're asking this question, who is the Word? The Word became flesh. We'll look at that in just a minute. But who is this? This is the one true God. The very expression of God. Fully God. This is the eternal God who created all things and holds all things together. This is the one who said, Let there be light. As we're told in John chapter 1 and in Colossians Jesus Christ was the agent of creation. Now, I remember as a little kid reading Genesis, and I didn't think of Jesus. Jesus was the New Testament guy. God was the Old Testament guy, right? just thinking of a little kid mindset. Jesus doesn't show up until Matthew. But if you go back to the book of Genesis, you don't have to, but in Genesis, when he says, let us make man in our image, plural, take that with the first part of John, take that with the first chapter of Colossians, piece it all together, not only that, but take all the I am statements of Jesus throughout his earthly ministry, and voila, you have the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to hit this nail really hard because this is one of the finest, most abused pieces of historic Christianity that has been attacked throughout history with heresy. And that is the eternality of Jesus Christ and the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was not the first one made, and then God liked him so much, he made him his son, and then had him make the rest. That's a false, heretical statement taught throughout church history by many different false teachers. There are folks who say he's simply a good man. I thought it was interesting. I saw in the magazine five, six years ago, it talked about uh, the most popular people, like 100 most popular people, And I think the Beatles were before Jesus, but they saw Jesus as a a leader. He was a religious leader, somebody who was impressive, somebody who had a following, and that was it. And now they may have put a tiny little line of, there are some people out there who actually believe he was the son of God. But, you know, that's not placed very high. They have this picture of he's a prophet, he's a teacher. And it's interesting, if you walk through the life of Jesus, you'll see that's actually what people thought of him at that time as well. But that's not who he is. Jesus Christ is the eternal God. Christ has no beginning. He'll have no end. When he came in the flesh, Jesus was not coming down for the very first time. He wasn't made. He took on flesh. By the way, this is why back the Old Testament prophets say, to us a son is given. Not to us a son is born, or to us a son appears, or to us a son is made. To us a son is given, showing the eternality of Jesus Christ. We we defang the incredible doctrinal truth of the incarnation if we make Jesus a mere creation. If he's a mere man that was extra special, we lose it. But I go even further than that. If he's a mere creation, one of God's things that he made, we gut the rest of the scripture and we completely gut the entire story of his advent, first and second. And so, I I hit that nail hard, beloved, because it is a rank heresy that is throughout the history of the church, and it is so easy for folks to think that there's Almighty God, then he made Jesus, Jesus was his son, and then Jesus came to earth. And is Jesus special? He's extra special, but he's not God. There are very kind people who will come to your house and try to teach you that. They'll go door to door and teach that heresy. No... Who is the Word? He's God. And I love John chapter 1 because there's no mistake here. There's no mix-up in the words. The Word was God. The Word is God. The very expression of the sovereign king. All right. Now look, turn with me back, if you would, to John 1.14. And I'm going to look at a host of scriptures here um, with you. So, before I go back to 114, turn with me to Romans chapter 8 verse 3. And if you're super fast this morning, Romans 8, Galatians 4 and Philippians 2. But we'll start with Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. How? By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. And Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. One of my favorite phrases in the whole Bible is this phrase, fullness of time. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. probably one of, if not the most classic texts on this doctrine of the Incarnation. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The concept there is to cling to it. and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now turn with me back to John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word is the eternal Son, Jesus Christ. And I'm asking now, what has He done? We know who He is, but what has He done? And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Creator becomes the creation. The Son, the sovereign God of the universe, comes in the flesh. Now, let me take a step back here, you guys, because this is where deer in the headlights typically happens, I think, theologically for us. I will own this from the get-go. I'm speaking of the miraculous right now. I know that in Christian circles, Lord willing, in, in some Christian circles, we believe this. I, I believe this. I believe God came as a man to this earth And for 30 plus years, lived an absolutely perfect life, was taken, was crucified, for the penalty of the bad stuff I've done. My sin imputed to this person the Word on the cross, and His righteousness imputed to me. I I believe that. But I will tell you, if there was ever a miracle, if there was ever a doctrine... If there was ever a truth of the Word of God that people should stumble over, would stumble over, have stumbled over, it is the doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So much so that I've heard some liberal Christians drop that and say you don't lose much if you lose the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Which I heard one pastor say years ago, the only thing you lose if you drop the incarnation is you lose Jesus Christ. And the truth is, beloved, that this is pivotal. The incarnation is not a wasted doctrine. It's not a small doctrine. It's not an addition. This is pivotal to our understanding of the very gospel. This is pivotal to our understanding of who Jesus is. This is pivotal to our understanding of redemption. You miss the incarnation. You neglect the incarnation. You push it to the side. You lose the gospel. It's like like pulling a thread and the entire thing falls apart it is vital to our belief of the gospel of Jesus Christ to know and believe the incarnation. So when people say, you believe that? Yes, I believe that. But more than believe it, I I die for it. It's it's a vital piece. It's not something that that you add to your theology. So I have my theological persuasions right here. Oh, yeah, no, the incarnation can go in there. No, you don't have anything if the incarnation's not in there. It's of necessity to the entire story of redemption. If Jesus Christ is not God, the rest of the word falls apart. And if Jesus Christ, God, did not come in the flesh, the rest of the Bible falls apart. You have no gospel, you are still in your sins right now. And so this this is the sad part, and this is the hard part for me as a preacher and just as a believer, is that it's so attached to one time of year, and the Incarnation almost becomes the Christmas doctrine, and the rest of the year you don't hear about the Incarnation, but beloved, without it, you don't have anything. Shame on me, and I'll just take it right on the chin, shame on me for not preaching on the Incarnation in June. Because this is not simply something that we talk about one time of year. This is vital to our understanding of the gospel. It's truly one of the greatest miracles in the Bible. It's interesting to me that you have folks who struggle with the concept of creation or don't struggle with it, and they say, I believe that. Well, do you believe in the incarnation? Well, I struggle with that one a little bit the fact of deity coming in the place of humanity. Now, if you would look at verse 14, I want to draw your attention to something here that could easily go past. Notice it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I don't know if every one of your Bible translations says dwelt or has a different kind of word that is said there. But a a more literal translation or another translation could be, and pitched his tent among us. Now, I believe, and every commentary I read all went there, and I believe it's absolutely true, this concept that pitched his tent among us. God put himself among us. Well, where would you go? Where does your mind go theologically or just biblically when you think of a tent being put up and God being among his people. What do you think of? Starts with a T, ends an temple. The temple or the tabernacle. You think about this place where Moses is commanded back in Exodus, I want you to build a tent, and God is very specific. The specifications of it are very clear. A holy tent designed by God with great detail and specifications. This was where the people of God would go. Would go for what? Well, here's a list, a few things. This was a location for worship. It was a location where they could make atonement. It was a location where one could be ceremonially cleansed. It was a location where man had access to God. It was a location where Moses would hear from God. Now, here's the cool part. You ask the question, where, does, where do we... As New Testament believers right now, where do we go to be cleansed, to find atonement, to worship, to find access to the Father? Where is all that found? It is all found in the Lord Jesus. The Old Testament tabernacle is a type of Jesus. It's pointing forward to him. So I don't think that the, the Lord, uh, the Holy Spirit working through John here is making any mistake in the ink that he puts down here when he says, he came and he pitched his tent in our midst. This is what he did. This is what the sovereign God did. He came to be with us. Remember his name? Emmanuel, which means God with us. Beloved, this is where it it, it gets so striking. If you think back in the Old Testament and you think of all the hard work they're doing and they're building the tabernacle, they're working so hard to make it so beautiful and structured, all of that, in Hebrews chapter 9, we're told, is a shadow pointing towards the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the tabernacle. He is the temple. We don't go to a particular location. Let me touch on this really quick. Um, God doesn't live in this building. This is not the new tabernacle. I know there are some church buildings that call themselves the Brooklyn Tabernacle or whatnot. No, this isn't where God is. You don't come to a place to go to God. You come to a person to go to God. The Lord Jesus Christ, as he put on flesh, as he came to the world... He dwelt among us. The presence of God himself manifested in the person of Jesus Christ on this planet. Now, let's back up for just a second. Remember, from a man's perspective, poor family, kid born out of wedlock, out in a manger, out in this weird barn, because nobody would take this pregnant woman in there. What a silly looking scene. But theologically, from God's perspective, what God's accomplishing in the midst of that very moment is one of the greatest events to ever take place in God's world. To think that that baby is the sovereign king. Is that message hard for you to believe? Don't answer that. Just think about it. Is that hard for you? You wrestle with that a little bit? No wonder the Scripture says that God will use the foolishness of the message we preach to shame the wise. Because the world hears that message and they say, you are insane. And yet I am convinced this is the truth. This is is truly what took place. Let me read this quote for you guys really quick from F.F. Bruce. Bruce. I thought this was helpful. He says, The glory which shone in the tabernacle and temple, veiled in the mysterious cloud, was but the foreglow of that excelling glory which shone in the incarnate Word. That glory that was seen in the temple in the Old Testament as the Jewish people came to that temple was simply the afterglow. It was just a a mere... um, peace to the greatness and the glory that would be seen in Christ as he came to this earth and laid his life down. Which is why, if you look down at John 1.14, and the Word became flesh. Who's the Word? He's the sovereign king of the universe. What has the Word done? He became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this is what I want to ask now is, why did He do this? Why did the Son do this? We know who He is. We know what He's done and why has He done this. And I just want to give you five reasons to think on. He came to live an absolute perfect life in obedience to the law of God. He came to be tempted in every way as we have, yet without sin. He came to do the will of the Father, the one who sent him. He came to point and direct attention to the truth. And he came eventually to lay his life down as the great payment for sin, the perfect sacrifice. This is why it's tricky, guys. Theologically, as we, as we seek to separate the, the incarnation from the death, burial, and resurrection. Now, my heart cannot help but be thinking about my mind, those guys that just drove by with sirens going on. So let me pray for them really quick. Father, I ask for these folks that have driven by and ask that you would uh, grant them wisdom. And Father, the knowledge they need as they rush to somebody's rescue this morning. We're not there. We don't know the trial and the difficulty and the fear that's in the heart of someone in our community. And so I pray you give them the wisdom to be able to go and rush to the rescue and help them in Jesus' name. Amen. You can't separate the incarnation from the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all pieced together. It's all systematic. It's all glued together. You must see it as a whole. And so, beloved, when we ask the question, why is the Son doing this? Why is the Word taking on flesh and coming Because there is a great, grand, glorious, redemptive purpose in the mind of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit to rescue a people. To rescue a people. As the sovereign king took on flesh, and he says, we beheld his glory. Now, if I were to preach this message this morning, to a group of people who did not know the Lord Jesus Christ, rejected Christ and sat in this room and just grit their teeth through this whole sermon. They would not behold His glory. They wouldn't see His glory. They would not see the glory of this message. It is the sovereign grace of God that you can see the glory of this message. you should not be able to see the glory of the message of the Incarnation apart from the Spirit of God regenerating you and enabling you to see it for that which it is. And the fact that preaching this, or you hearing this preached, or you reading these portions of the Word, and the fact that it fills you with joy at the power of God. Beloved, that is the act of God in your life. That is the work of God in your life. The world saw a poor people. They saw them standing there with a new baby. Nobody would let him in. Dark, damp, baby crying. But the believer... Now remember, this is what's so interesting, right? I said God's perspective at the beginning of this message. I said you got man's perspective and God's perspective. What is phenomenal is when God, by the work of the Spirit of God enables us to see God's perspective. And then we start to ask the question, I wonder what God's doing here. I wonder what God is accomplishing in this. And so here we are, 2020, on the brink of 2021, and I have no clue what I'm going to go through. I don't know what you'll go through this year. I don't know what we'll go through as a church body. Never would have called this year. But the reality is, if we can look at what's taking place in that manger and come away being in shock at the incredible things that Almighty God sees taking place in that moment, and that rocks the the ground beneath our feet, then what might the world be looking at right now today and say, that's so weird, what do you think about that? My question remains my question. I wonder what the Lord is doing there. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth. Lord, it is so hard to find the right words, clear and describe something so indescribable as the